The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts. And today, the next passage we come to is Acts 14, 21 through 28. And it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your word. How true, relevant, powerful it is. We pray that you would help us not just to understand intellectually some of the truths in this passage, but God, that you would cause these things to find a place in our hearts. Lord, open our eyes to see more of your glory Open our eyes to see more of your will, even for our lives personally, Lord, that we would become all that you want us to be this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the most common reasons people give for not wanting to be involved in a church is that they've been hurt by church in the past. Uh, this hurt can be inflicted in a variety of different ways and is often extremely painful for months, years, even decades. Um, I remember when I was around 10 or 11 years old, uh, my dad went to uh, be the pastor of a church, actually. And this is a story, by the way, that he gave me permission to share with you. And this church was uh, located in a rural area not too far away from Charlottesville, Virginia, and was fairly typical for a Baptist church in that area in many ways. It was uh, relatively small, pretty traditional, and had been around for a very long time. However, one feature of this church that wasn't at all typical is that the leadership team of the church, which was actually the deacon board, had forced the resignation of seven pastors in seven years. Uh, I'm not exactly sure of everything that was contributing 
to this dynamic, but from what I understand and what I was told, it seemed that there were some people in positions of power in the church who really enjoyed having that power and did not want to share that with anyone else. And so my dad accepted this invitation to become their pastor, and he managed to, to stay there for about a year and a half before they finally forced his resignation, making him number eight in the line of pastors who were forced out after a very short tenure. Now, thankfully, my parents, I believe, shielded me from the worst of all of the ugliness of the situation and, and everything that went down, but uh, that experience left a mark on our family and on my dad in particular that still felt to this day. Uh, my dad has never had it in him to be a, a pastor anymore and uh, honestly struggles to even be meaningfully involved in a church because of the things that he experienced at that one. And so I share that with you just to let you know that I have no doubt that experiences and, and hurt inflicted at times by churches can be very real and often very painful, as I myself have experienced to some degree. And maybe you have as well. Or maybe you know someone who's had a hurtful experience. And maybe that's caused you to not want to be involved in a church. Or even if you are involved to some degree, maybe uh, like attending on Sundays, but maybe it's caused you not to want to have any involvement beyond that. Church has hurt you once, and you're just not going to let that happen again. So you've determined to keep the church at arm's length. If that describes you, or even just someone you know and are trying to minister to, then this passage in Acts 14 is definitely a good one to be familiar with. And you'll see what I mean as we go along. But first, let me remind you of the context here. Paul and Barnabas have been traveling from city to city preaching the gospel on what is often known as Paul's first missionary journey. This is recorded in Acts chapters 13 and 14, and you can see it on the map here. Uh, the red line is what we've looked at so far with Antioch all the way there on the right, and then going on to Salamis, Paphos, Perga, the, the other Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and finally Derbe. We then read this in verses 21 through 23 of our main passage, Acts 14. It says, When they had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. So, we can see in these verses how Paul and Barnabas retraced their steps and went back through the cities that they had already gone through. Now, just think about that for a moment. Right? Going back through all of those cities was a lot of work. You know, travel wasn't easy back then, right? They didn't have sheet stations that you could stop at every 30 minutes to refresh yourself. No, travel was actually quite difficult and dangerous. On top of that, 
Keep in mind that many of these cities that they were returning to had kicked them out before. And in some cases had even tried to kill them. So Paul and Barnabas were risking their lives by returning to many of these places. Yet according to these verses, they did it in order to, first, to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, that's verse 22, and to appoint elders for them in every church, verse 23. Think about the kind of picture that paints of Paul's missionary efforts. How did he approach his missionary task? What did he focus on and prioritize and invest his energy into? Clearly, as these verses illustrate, his focus was on establishing healthy churches. That's the main idea of our main passage this morning. Paul's ministry efforts centered around establishing healthy churches. Paul would arrive in a town, preach the gospel, see people come to faith, organize them into a very basic church, leave and then do the same thing in other cities, and then come back through to strengthen that church and appoint qualified leaders for them and make sure that the church was generally healthy before moving on. Paul would also keep in touch with these churches afterwards and often write letters to them to guide them and help them work through the various issues they encountered. And by the way, it's a good thing he did that because those letters form a large portion of what we now know as the New Testament. So don't miss that. A significant portion of the books in the New Testament are letters written not to Christians in general or even to individual Christians, but rather to churches. So churches are actually central to the entire New Testament. New Testament Christianity revolves around churches. And so that means if you want to be a faithful New Testament Christian today, if you want to live out New Testament Christianity today in your own life, well, then you have to be a part of a church. There's just no way around it. And not just part of what's often called the universal church, which consists of all believers everywhere and from every period of time, but also part of the localized expression of that, what we might call local churches. That's what we see in the New Testament. And that involves not just showing up on Sunday morning, but actually being involved in the relational community of that church, becoming a member of the church, supporting that church financially, and ministering to others in the church according to your, the, the gifts and abilities that God has given you. And that's something that a lot of professing Christians, it seems, in our individualistic Western culture, seem to have trouble embracing. It seems like there are a lot of professing Christians these days just wandering around, we might say, and pursuing a meaningful spiritual life apart from any church. I mean, they rely on this ministry over here and you know, that special event over there and 
you know, this Facebook group and that YouTube channel and this famous preacher and that best-selling book. And many of these things that they get involved with and, and these resources that they utilize might be relatively good things. But the problem is that that's all they have. Like there's nothing that, that anchors them. No place that they can call home. So they're, they're essentially spiritual nomads. Friends, listen. If you want to be all that God wants you to be and experience all that God wants you to experience and make a difference in the way God calls you to make a difference, all of that begins with you getting connected in a meaningful way to a local church. The best way you can glorify God and, and live your life for Him is to spend it serving in and through and from a local church. And the reason I say from a local church is because there is indeed significant ministry that takes place outside of a local church. The church isn't the limit of our ministry, but it is the base, or at least it should be the base of our ministry. We can see this pretty clearly in the Apostle Paul's life. His missionary endeavors, of course, took him far away from his home church in Antioch. And yet, he was operating under the authority of that church the whole time. I mean, back in Acts 13, if you remember, we see Paul and Barnabas being commissioned for their ministry by whom? By that church of Antioch, right? Look what it says in Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That's Barnabas and Paul, right? Same name, same guy. And then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So notice that Paul and Barnabas didn't just head off on their own and do their own thing. No, they were sent by a local church and had that church's prayers and support and blessing. Then we see back in our main text the manner in which Paul and Barnabas concluded their first missionary journey. Acts 14, 24 through 27. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So what did they do at the conclusion of their trip? Did they just send out an email to all their prayer supporters and financial donors thanking them for everything? No. What does it say here? They went back to their home church in Antioch and it says in verse 27, declared all that God had done with them. Now that word declared is translated in most other translations as reported. The NIV, CSV, NASB, and NLT all translated as reported. Paul and Barnabas went back 
to the church of Antioch and gave a report of their missionary activities. And I'm convinced they did that because it was both appropriate and even expected. They were operating under the authority of that church and were accountable to that church and therefore reported back to that church regarding their ministry activities. So just to state the obvious here, guys, if even the great Apostle Paul, right, capital A, Apostle Paul, if even Paul put himself under the authority of a local church and made himself accountable to that church, then I'm pretty sure all of us need to do the same thing as well. Amen. Because the fact is that we as Christians are indeed called to engage in ministry that extends beyond this church, right? Like I said, the church isn't the limit of our ministry. So even if we never become cross-cultural missionaries like Paul and Barnabas, we're still called to be missionaries in this area, orienting our entire lives around the mission Jesus has given us of spreading the gospel and making disciples. But all of that ministry should be done with the local church as our base. People who know us. People to whom we're accountable. Now again, I know that that might be an incredibly difficult and even scary thought for some people because of experiences they've had in the past with churches. Um, I get that. And as I mentioned, I've experienced that. Some of that hurt myself. But in light of the picture that's painted here in Acts 14, and in the New Testament as a whole, of the centrality of the church, let me encourage you. Don't give up on meaningful involvement in a local church. You know, when you think about it, saying that you're not going to be a part of a church anymore because of a, a bad experience you've had with a church in the past is kind of like saying that you're not going to go to the hospital anymore because there was one hospital that didn't give you good treatment. It's like saying that you're not going to eat out at any restaurant anymore because there was food at one restaurant that gave you food poisoning. <laughs> It's like saying that you're not going to take your car to the mechanic anymore because there was this one mechanic that ripped you off. Like, I don't think I know anyone who's ever responded like that to bad experiences they've had in various other contexts. And so why would we respond in that way to a bad experience in a church? Friends, my advice, if you find it difficult to love the church for the sake of the church, is don't love the church for the sake of the church. Love the church for the sake of Jesus. Because remember that the church is what? The bride of Christ. That's the metaphor used for the church throughout the New Testament, including by Jesus himself in the Gospel of John, also in several of Paul's letters and in the book of Revelation as well. Jesus loves the church and is committed to her just as a husband is committed to his wife. In fact, Jesus loves the church so much that he laid down his life to purchase 
her rescue. As Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Isn't that incredible? I mean, the church was morally filthy and totally helpless and, and undeserving of anything good. And yet, Jesus gave his life to purchase her rescue and to cleanse her of all of that filth. That's how much he loves the church. That's how committed he is to the church. The church is his bride. And so if you love Jesus and want to enjoy closeness to him, then you have to be on good terms with the church. Like you can't love Jesus, but despise his bride. It'd be the same as with a, a man and his wife, right? Like you can't be on good terms with me if you're not on good terms with my wife, Becky, right? It, it just doesn't work like that. If there are unresolved issues between you and Becky, then, well, by extension, there are unresolved issues between you and me. And it works the same with Jesus and the church. You can't love Jesus or be close to Jesus, but despise his bride. In addition, not only is the church the beloved bride of Jesus, it's also his chosen instrument for reaching the world with the gospel. Jesus announces his plan for reaching the world with the gospel when he says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As the saying goes, the church is God's plan A and he does not have a plan B. And that's certainly what we see also in Paul's missionary endeavors, illustrated so well in our main passage. In fact, I think we could even say that Paul's missionary strategy didn't merely involve churches. No, his strategy was churches. They were central. And I believe Paul approached things that way because he knew not only that the church is the bride of Christ and also the chosen instrument of Christ, but also that it's an essential component of the spiritual health of his conference. Think again about the snapshot of Paul's ministry we see in Acts 14. He didn't just share the gospel in a city and see people come to faith in Jesus and then tell them, all right, guys, you've got it from here. Like, here's some, here's some good YouTube preachers for you to listen to. Good luck living the Christian life. That's not what Paul's approach was. No, he made sure that those who had put their faith in Jesus were organized into groups called churches so that each individual convert could have the committed support and prayers of other brothers and sisters in the faith as they all try to live for Jesus together. And on top of that, they would, of course, also benefit from the 
wise guidance and faithful teaching of the church leaders. So that's the role that a healthy church plays in the lives of its members. Uh, the church is, is kind of like a greenhouse that helps its members grow spiritually and makes sure that each one is cared for. And the primary way that happens, of course, is when the individual members of a church take the initiative to care for one another. Uh, as we can see in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, the role of church leaders is to equip the saints. That is to equip all the rest of the Christians for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So it's not about programs. It's about people. Those are the, that's what we're counting on to get ministry done. And this ministry that the members of a church are supposed to have toward one another includes a wide variety of things like praying for each other and encouraging each other and even confronting each other in love when there's a need for that and certainly comforting each other during a difficult time and just making any spiritual investment in each other that they have an opportunity to make. And I'll just say that in our particular church, the, the primary context where we see these kinds of things taking place is it's really in community groups and also in various informal discipling relationships. In addition, we also care for one another at our prayer gatherings each Wednesday evening when we pray for each other. And even at our members' meetings that we try to have once every few months, we've made it our regular practice to review the names of each individual member who isn't currently attending or is only attending infrequently and just give everyone an update on that member. Again, this is, we don't do this for, for everyone, just, just for the members of the church. So how is that person doing? What's going on in their lives that's preventing them from attending? What communication have we had with them? Uh, how can other members of the church reach out to them in a helpful way? And, and of course, we do this First and foremost, not because we're trying to embarrass anybody, but because we care about people. And we want to do everything we can to minister to them. And on top of that, one thing our, our church's elders do that some of you may not be aware of is that we actually have a specially designated meeting each month. That's, we call it our shepherding meeting where we don't handle any church business or administrative issues, nothing like that. But we simply go name by name through the membership roster of our church, praying for people uh, as individuals uh, as we go along and also coordinating our ministry efforts to them to, to make sure everyone is being taken care of. So again, that's a meeting that we do as elders last a, last a couple of hours every single month. And so hopefully you're starting to get the picture of how a, a healthy church functions and how its members and how its leaders are called to minister to each other. You know, this isn't like LA Fitness that we're talking about here. You know, LA Fitness, of course, has a such thing as membership. Like if you pay enough money, you can be a member of LA Fitness and use their exercise equipment and probably make a few friends while you're there. But ultimately, you know, we understand LA Fitness doesn't 
like really care about your welfare. Like, like you could go and work out at the gym and, and then you could right after that go across the street to McDonald's and stuff your face full of Big Macs and French fries and just live a terribly unhealthy lifestyle and LA Fitness doesn't care. As long as you pay your membership dues every month, you're good to go there. LA Fitness doesn't take any responsibility for your welfare, not even your physical welfare. Yet that's exactly what Jesus has designed the church to do. Like to offer support and nurture and care and teaching and to ta actively take responsibility for one another's well-being. He designed the church, guys, to be a family, a spiritual family that is committed to each other and that's there for each other, even in the midst of the most difficult times of life. And obviously, no church does that perfectly. But if a church is healthy, that's at least what they're pursuing. They're at least trying to get there. And that's why Paul organized his converts into churches. He understood how critical churches are to the spiritual health of God's people. I remember one time watching a documentary on uh, solitary confinement in the prison system. And after watching it, I'll tell you, I would not wish that on anybody. Uh, it's unfortunate that some people behave in, in such a way that perhaps at times that kind of thing is necessary, but it is certainly not desirable. Because even if you're not trained in psychology, you can probably imagine how solitary confinement for a prolonged period of time can really mess someone up in the head. Um, psychologists tell us that sol prolonged solitary confinement can cause things like hallucinations and panic attacks and paranoia, as well as difficulties with thinking and concentration and memory. So basically, it's really not a good idea. Likewise, it's also not a good idea for our spiritual lives. God didn't design us to live the Christian life alone. He designed us to live it in the context of a community of other Christians and to have meaningful relationships with them so that we can build each other up. You might be aware that according to the Bible in 1 Corinthians 12, every Christian has a spiritual gift, an ability given to us by the Holy Spirit to minister to other believers in a particular way. It could be serving or teaching or a variety of other things. And the beauty of it is that no one Christian has all of the spiritual gifts. So there's a sense in which each of us is incomplete by ourselves. And that's by design so that we would need each other to complete us. You know, the more I read the New Testament and the more I learn about God's design for the church, the more I marvel at this incredible gift that God has given to his people. I mean, what wisdom, what goodness, what grace God has displayed in giving us this incredible gift of the church. What a blessing. 
So in light of all this, let me encourage you this morning in a few different ways. First of all, if you're just casually attending this church on Sundays, let me encourage you to pursue a more meaningful involvement with the church through things like community groups and coming early and staying late on Sunday mornings and the Wednesday evening prayer gathering and uh, volunteer opportunities and just informal relationships. Don't hold the church at arm's length. Be all in. And also, if you're not yet a member of a church, let me encourage you to sign up for the membership class that we're going to have next month. Um, I'll be announcing more about that in the coming weeks, but you could sign up even this morning just by putting your name on a connection card and the word membership at the bottom. However, before you do any of that, it's critical to understand one thing. In order to be a part of this spiritual family, you have to be supernaturally born into it. You see, the all-important prerequisite for being a part of the church is to embrace Jesus and put your trust in him to rescue you from your sins. Because the Bible teaches that you and me and everyone else in this world has sinned against a holy God. And we'll have to answer to God for our sin and even suffer for our sin for all of eternity in hell. Right? That's not just some scare tactic that preachers came up with to get people to live better. It's a reality that Jesus himself talks about repeatedly. In fact, we learn more about hell from Jesus than we do from any other place in the entire Bible. However, the good news is that even when we were in such a wretched and miserable and desperate condition, Jesus came to rescue us. That was his purpose for coming into this world. He accomplished that rescue by living a perfectly sinless life and then by dying on the cross to pay for our sins. The full force of God the Father's judgment against sin came down on Jesus so that it wouldn't have to come down on us. Like he suffered the punishment that we deserved. And then three days later, he triumphantly resurrected from the dead. And the way we can share in his triumph over sin and death is very simple. It's by repenting of our sins and putting our trust in Jesus alone. Not in our moral efforts, not in our acts of religious devotion, not even our, in our involvement in a local church, but in Jesus alone to rescue us. This church can't save you, but Jesus can. And that's the way we become a part of the family of God. We're adopted into that family by embracing this message of Jesus that we call the gospel. You know, not every teenager who hangs out at another teenager's house to play video games is automatically a part of that family. <laughs> In order to become a part of that family, they would have to be adopted. <laughs> Proximity doesn't just make you a part of the family. You have to be adopted into it. And the, spiritually, the same thing happens through the gospel. 
And that's why, as you can see in verse 21 of our main passage, as well as dozens of other places in Acts, the first thing Paul did when he entered a city was to proclaim the gospel in that city. The gospel is the great prerequisite to membership in a church, and we could even say to the existence of a church. Churches are birthed through the gospel. The way Paul started churches was essentially by preaching them into existence. Churches don't exist apart from the gospel message of Jesus. So the church is the fruit, but the gospel is the root. 